0: Story number one, there is a favorite in the AFC, and it's a familiar one, but not one you're probably thinking about. Story number two, Let's Go Brandon has made its way into, well, you'll you'll find out, and let's check in on Oklahoma State basketball as they head up to Connecticut for the Hall of Fame challenge. Welcome, everybody. Episode number 18, I think this is, of the Gray Area, Apple Podcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Coming to you, of course, as always, from Oklahoma State University. My name is Grayson Singleton. Thank you for joining me. Let's start with this. Um, I found this on TikTok, and this was actually a really cool synopsis of these two former Alabama teammates. So Take a listen to this. Devante Smith plays for Henry Ruggs Devontae Smith was a college teammate of Henry Ruggs Roommates even They recreated their old celebration this season And are great friends After the news of Ruggs's tragic accident Devontae had a tough week focusing on football But it gave him a bigger purpose Just going out there for, I mean, playing for my brother Knowing that he can't play um, right now, so it just kind of gave me a bigger purpose just to go out there. On Devontae's touchdown, he held up three fingers as a symbol for rugs who used that celebration to honor a friend who died in a car accident. Okay, so that was summarized by a an account on TikTok named Nathan Knows, and it's actually very, it's very accurate of depiction of the relationship between Devontae Smith of the Eagles and former Las Vegas Raiders wide receiver Henry Ruggs. And I haven't touched on the Henry Ruggs situation on this podcast, and I will do so briefly. Um, As we remember, Henry Ruggs was arrested for DUI um, that resulted in death. And he has added, there have been firearm charges added to that as well, um, stemming from him driving his Corvette 156 miles an hour, crashing into a car, and the car was immediately set on fire, killing a 23-year-old woman and her dog. We all, remember, we all know the situation. And there's not really much interesting that I can say about that just because it's cut and dry. We all know that's bad. Um, but we, what we don't think about in these situations... Are um these are still people. You know, these are still people that made mistakes. And what Devontae Smith has said, what Derek Carr articulated, Derek Carr, the Raiders quarterback, who in a press conference said that if nobody's going to be there for Henry Ruggs, he will be. And my first reaction to this was um as I watched the videos, I watched Henry Ruggs appear in court for the first time. yeah, he did something pretty awful. but if you watch that video that looks like a terrified terrified kid. who knows what's about to come Henry Ruggs, I think, as of the last time I checked he could spend anywhere from six to 48 years in prison, in a state prison in in Nevada, where this happened. Um, and one thing we just have to know when it comes to situations like this is that these people still need people around them. And that is why I appreciated what Derek Carr had to say. That's why I appreciated what Devontae Smith had to say and how that really affected him, you know, with with um, them being former roommates at Alabama. Um, it stinks. It's it's awful, but I think what really puts this in perspective for me is Henry Ruggs. I believe is no older than twenty three. He may even be twenty two. Um, I'm twenty. This is a kid that's pretty much same same section section uh, chapter of his life that a lot of us are still in. You know, um, and to see that that's all taken away by one mistake, I saw this summarized in an ES, on on an ESPN show. I can't remember which one it was, but one guy was saying that Henry Ruggs, from the background that he came from, he had to do everything everything right, and he did. He did everything right up until he didn't. And that's what's gonna cost him. Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking I'm making excuses for Henry Ruggs, I'm not. I'm not. I fully expect Henry Ruggs to serve whatever consequence comes to him because he broke the law. Um, But I think that the fact that he had to do everything right and then one mistake washes that all away. The fact that Devontae Smith and Derek Carr are saying that they're going to be there for him says exponentially more about them as people than it does on all of us who excoriate him for it. You know, and there and there is there is a time and place to do that. But that doesn't say anything about us. It just says that we're holding somebody accountable. It says more about those people that say, I'm going to put my arm around him in this extremely, extremely dark time, than to take the easy road and escoriate him to high hell. Um, so I just wanted to leave off the show with that. And because I like to highlight a lot of good people. And, you know, Devontae Smith, I can't imagine have having to think about that. My you know, a best friend of mine about to go to a state prison, that, it, and still having to prepare for a football game, you know? I mean, I have a situation going on right now that um, is nowhere near as paramount as that, and it has knocked me a little bit out of whack today um, as I record on this Tuesday evening. So. I just, I just can't imagine that. And then Derek Carr saying that he's going to rally around him. And Derek Carr's Christian faith is in play here a lot. And we're going to talk about the Christian religion um, later on the show. But, you know, in terms of somebody really being an example of the Christian faith, hats off to Derek Carr as well. But let's stay in the NFL and we'll stay in the same conference that the Las Vegas Raiders are in. And there's a new favorite in my opinion in the AFC and right now they're not the one seed they're not the two seed as a matter of fact I think they're the five seed five or six seed and that is a six and four New England Patriots originally I picked the Kansas City Chiefs to go to the Super Bowl as it looks right now I think there's an 80% chance barring barring catastrophic injury I think there is a an 80% chance the New England Patriots represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. And we can talk about the Tennessee Titans being 8-2, and two, rightfully so. They have figured out a way by imploring a running back by committee with Adrian Peterson and McNichols and De- Deontay Foreman. They have crafted a way to replace Derrick Henry and at least have some semblance of a dominant running game as well as their defense, obviously coached by Mike Vrabel, led by guys like Kevin Byard, has vastly improved from last year, and Ryan Tannehill's been all right. The Baltimore Ravens, they look like a team that can make some noise. I have questions about their defense. Their defense is suspect. The Kansas City Chiefs, we don't know what we're going to get from here on out. The Vegas Raiders are slipping and sliding. They've just had such a tumultuous season. I don't believe that they're going to make any noise. And then, and then there's Buffalo. Buffalo has one of the more complete rosters in the NFL. But they have yet to play the Patriots this season. They'll play them twice over the course of the last eight weeks. And when I watch the New England Patriots, the way they run the ball, the way they use the play-action pass, which they have used as good, if not better, than every single team in the NFL this year. And the way they get pressure on the quarterback, the way they stop the run, the way they take the ball away, they lead the league in interceptions with 14, I believe is what it is. The New England Patriots, to me, even though they started off slow, which is why they're 6-4, and four, they're playing the best football in the NFL, in my opinion. Because they look so in tune. They look like a finely oiled machine in all facets of the game. Their passing game, their running game, the way they stop the run, the way, the way they block for the run, the way they block for the pass, the way they stop the pass, they are so detailed and so perfectly run. I watched that game against the Cleveland Browns. Now, granted, you can say the Cleveland Browns were riddled with injury, and that is fair. They were missing Nick Chubb. They were missing Kareem Hunt. They were missing their third-string running back, even though their fourth-string running back came in and had a pretty nice day on the ground. Were they missing their right tackle, Jack Conklin? Yes, they were. They were healthy on the defensive side, though. And they let up 45 points. On a team that is built to not really score that many points. You have to understand how the Patriots are built. The Patriots are a team that is built on run the ball, run the ball, play action. And then we're going to stop you on defense. And and when you set a, a football team up like that, Generally, you're not going to score a lot, of, a lot of points. So the fact that they scored 45 points on a defense that's supposed to be good, on a secondary that is filled with first and second round picks, and John Johnson, who is a pretty good safety, by the way, the Patriots should not have scored 45 points. Now, we have to take into consideration the Browns effect, because the Browns are set up very similarly. We're going to run the ball. We're going to run it some more. We're going to hit a couple play action passes to our tight ends. We're going to run the ball some more. The Browns are the kings of going on nine-minute drives. There should not be enough possessions with two teams that are set up like that for a team to score 45 points. And the Patriots did. Because at the beginning of the year, the Patriots were saying, we're going to bring rookie quarterback Mac Jones along slowly. And they did. They brought him along very slowly. They relied on the run game. They brought back Trent Brown. They they were able to retain David Andrews. They have seemingly replaced Joe Tooney, who went to Kansas City. They have replaced him at the guard position. Their offensive line is fortified. And they have brought along Mac Jones impeccably. I mean, this might be... and. This is, and recency bias can play into this as well, but this might be the best job of bringing along a rookie quarterback I have ever seen in my life. Mac Jones, against a quality defense, against a quality team, completed 10 of his first 12 passes. And he is putting balls on receivers. One of the things I was concerned about with Mac Jones is can he fit balls into tight windows? Not because I saw that he couldn't at Alabama, but because he was so used to throwing to dudes that were the most open on planet Earth. I mean, Devontae Smith was wide open. Jalen Waddell was running wide open during that year against Alabama. You know, and, you know, you see it now with Bryce Young. Bryce Young is not throwing to guys that are so wide open now, so we are able to see his accuracy put on display at a much more frequent level. Even though Alabama has some pretty good wide receivers, including Jamison Williams, who is a projected top fifteen pick in the draft next year, but Mac Jones has answered every single question imaginable, and the way he has command of that locker room is not something you would expect. For, the, for somebody who's quarterbacking as a rookie with the New England Patriots, with Bill Belichick obviously running the whole operation, and then you have Josh McDaniels, who is a very high-profile offensive coordinator. At some point, probably Josh McDaniels will get another head coaching opportunity. And he d- definitely deserves it, just seeing how he's brought along Mac Jones. But... There are t- there are two things about the Patriots that sets them apart, in my opinion. Number one, the way they bring along these rookies. They, obviously I just talked about Mac Jones, but they drafted Christian Barmore at the back end of the first round. Defensive lineman out of Alabama. Has made an instant impact. Numbers aren't going to blow you away. But if you watch the Patriots and you watch the interior pressure he gets, you watch the amount of space he takes up. He is a very key cog in the Patriots' running defense, being pretty good. And when you're the Patriots and you're stopping the run, you're forcing teams to be one-dimensional and throw into that secondary that is led by J.C. Jackson and has, you know, Devin McCourty back there. That's a pretty good secondary, and it's shown. Um... So we, we so there's Barmore, and then Ramondre Stevenson, who I thought was a st- was one of the steals of the draft, coming out of Oklahoma, at the running back position. James White, one of the running one of the Patriots running backs, is on IR. Damian Harris had a concussion last week. Ramondre Stevenson actually had a concussion last week. He was just the one that passed protocol. Um, he looked pretty good. If they want to utilize Ramondre Stevenson and Damian Harris as a one-two punch the rest of the season, God bless anybody who tries to stop that running attack, because Damian Harris has been absolutely fantastic, and Ramondre Stevenson in limited time has been pretty good, and then when they use Brandon Bolden as a third running back, oh yeah, he's pretty good too. So, there, so, we're, so there's the rookies. Now, the second thing the Patriots did, which is a little bit more high profile, was the amount of money they spent in the offseason. Bringing over guys like Matthew Judon, instant impact. Matthew Judon has been fantastic for New England. They got Hunter Henry. Hunter Henry has developed a great connection with Mac Jones at, at the tight end position. They brought in John New Smith. Hasn't had the same gaudy numbers that he had with Tennessee. But solid blocker. And in and when he, his number is called, solid receiver at the tight end position. Who else did they bring over? They brought over Kendrick Bourne. Kendrick Bourne has been a good has been a very good receiver. Now here is the thing with Kendrick Bourne. You don't really know if he's a one, but you just know he he just you just know that he's going to be a big body that can get you that, should, that can just get get open and presents a large body and a large catch radius which is good for a rookie quarterback Nelson Aguilar has been a deep threat he hasn't been fantastic but he's been a deep threat a guy to take the top off the defense and open up space for the tight ends Hunter Henry and John Smith as well as a receiver who's been in the Patriots system for a little bit Jacoby Myers they brought over Jalen Mills who he's not a great defensive back but as a rotational you know nickel or dime package excellent tackler good ball skills has definitely contributed to the Patriots leading the league in interceptions right now. Devon Gotcha from the Dolphins, another guy that you probably won't know. But he's at the defensive tackle position along with Christian Barmore. He's in there stopping the run. And they drafted Ronnie Perkins. That's the one I forgot that was in the third round. And my partner on the Spinning Sports Podcast, Landon Bethay, um I remember when the draft was going on and I saw may watching all of those barbecue tutorials make it look like you watch excuse. sorry about that um watching all of those um the draft an- analysis and whatnot and I saw that the Patriots in the third round took Ronnie Perkins the defensive end out of Alabama, out of uh, Oklahoma excuse me Sorry, that really tripped me up. I told I, I told him that's the steal of the draft. Ronnie Perkins has made an immediate impact. And you just see that they hit on everything the Patriots did. And, and this is not something that they do often. Also sign Ted Karras from Miami to fortify the offensive line. The Patriots had a plan to bring along a rookie quarterback and they have executed it so perfectly to where they are playing the their best football, which might be the best football and also the most sustainable football going into December and January. And those are things that can get you to a Super Bowl. And you can the danger here is that are they peaking at the wrong time? Possibly they're good, but I don't think they are. I think there's still way room for improvement with New England there's more to that Josh McDaniels offense that they can open up with as more and more comfortable as Mac Jones gets and who knows what Bill Belichick and his son will scheme up on the defensive side of the ball the Patriots are live the Chiefs are down Buffalo does not seem unbeatable Baltimore can be had as they were last Thursday night against Miami Tennessee, you know, they're still missing who I thought was the NFL MVP before he went down. And their defense at times can still be a little suspect, even though they're good. There's no clear runaway team at the top of the AFC that that tells me the Patriots cannot beat these guys with the way they play football. And with the way all of those other teams play football, it's set up to... Be a f- to be a letdown at one week, at some point. The Patriots are only two games out of first place in the conference. Right now, they sit a half game behind Buffalo in their division, and they're two games back at Tennessee, the conference leader. So the Patriots could get a first-round bye and have the entire AFC playoff go through Foxborough, like it did with Tom Brady at the helm. And the reason I'm so confident in this is because running the ball, stopping the run, and playing good defense on the back end is the most sustainable form of football there is. You've seen what happened with the Rams. The Rams, they do a lot of of those same things, except the Rams do rely on explosive plays a little bit more. And you see when those explosive plays go away, the Rams and Sean McVay, they're just not the same team. And we have seen this over the years, ever since they lost the Super Bowl to New England. So this has just been one of the masterful jobs by Bill Belichick, by Josh McDaniels, by Steve Belichick, too. We'll give him some credit, too. And by Mac Jones. And just by everybody involved. And I know as a coach, you can't get too high at this particular moment of time. But Bill Belichick has to be licking his chops with what he's got with this team. Because this is a team, this is a team that is set up to sustainably make noise the rest of the season. I would not be surprised at all if the Patriots end up getting the one and only first round bye in the AFC playoff and then run the table to the Super Bowl. And if they get a first round bye and a team like Tennessee eventually has to go to Foxborough, oh, look out. Oh, look out. Because they don't have their bruiser anymore. And you know what it's going to be very telling? I believe Tennessee at some point has to play the New England Patriots. Yeah, they do. Week 12, November November 8th, 28th. The Titans will go, will, will welcome the New England Patriots as well before the Patriots travel to Buffalo for the first of two meetings weeks 13 and 16 respectively and not only that let me and I'll close with this the Patriots schedule is pretty favorable the rest of the way they play the Falcons this Thursday and outside of the three games I just mentioned the other the other three are against the Colts the Jaguars and the Dolphins those are three, those are four winnable games that I just said right there that could have New England 10 and four and then say you fa- say you beat Tennessee, you're 11 and 4. say you split with the, um, with the bills. You're 12 and five. That's good enough to get you a first round buy in the AFC, in my opinion, with the more difficult schedule that Buffalo has going forward and you've already beaten Tennessee. That's something that I can that you can legitimately see happening with the New England Patriots in in terms of awards i think bill belichick is my coach of the year i did i think mac jones is a second place in offensive rookie of the year to jamar chase and they've just pieced together a lot of guys and they have a defensive player of the year candidate in jc jackson probably won't win it but he's a defensive candidate by the way he has a dope ig handle at mr int how about it 23 career interceptions all over the course, I believe, of the last three seasons. J.C. Jackson is a top-five corner in the NFL. Let us transition to what I hinted on earlier about when I was talking about Derek Hardy's Christian faith. Let's talk about religion, something I have never done on this podcast before. This is going to be interesting. So, I was going through TikTok, and if you're, by the way... I don't get my information from TikTok. But you can't argue video footage. And well, I saw this on TikTok. So if you couldn't understand what was happening, this was a church service in San Antonio where the crowd was – the crowd, the people in attendance, the worshipers, were chanting, let's go, Brandon. So let's – first of all, what we're going to talk about in this segment, we're going to talk about what what let's go, Brandon actually means. Why is it in a church – and what American ideals are being undercut by this? This is going to be an interesting segment. So first of all, let's start with whatever let's go, Brandon is. And by the way, your first question should be, who in God's name is Brandon? Okay, so <laughs> let's 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 um, let's talk about that. This is an article from the Associated Press News, who basically the AP basically governs all form of journalism, and. This says, quote, it started at an October 2nd NASCAR race at the Tallahada Superspeedway in Alabama. Brandon Brown, a 28-year-old driver, had won his first Xfinity series and was being interviewed by an NBC Sports reporter. The crowd behind him was chanting something at first difficult to make out. The reporter suggested they were chanting, let's go, Brandon, to cheer the driver. But it became increasingly clear that they were saying blank Joe Biden. What has happened since, because that reporter said, oh, they're saying, let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon has become synonymous and a G-rated version of saying, in short, in more appropriate terms, screw the president. So now you see where that happens, and now you see why this being in a church, hopefully you see why this being in a church is eh, not good. So, I talked about this at some point. I can't remember which podcast it was. But I talked about how the Christian religion, one of the problems I have with the Christian religion, is it is making itself very synonymous with the Republican Party. Now, if you are a Christian, I do not have a problem with you being Republican. There's, very, there's every reason for a Christian to be a Republican, there are some reasons where a Christian like myself can justify not being Republican. There are reasons to justify a Christian being a Democrat or a socialist or some or things like that. Just because you are a Christian as I am, and I want to make that clear, there are reasons for a Christian to not be a Republican. Now, the obvious uh, Republican appeal to Christianity is the party's, um, I don't want to say disdain, but their movement on um, eliminating rights for for homosexuals and the LGBTQ plus community. The, uh, another appeal is the pro-life stance when it comes to abortion, which is perfectly understandable. Other reasons for why there are also there are also reasons why a christian might like myself might be turned against the republican party i do not trust republicans with education with what is happening there in terms of you know banning every component of critical race theory you know and really trying to whitewash literally and figuratively american history because I think you're doing the gener- the next generation a disservice if they don't know the correct version of U.S. history. You're just going to raise a generation of ignorant kids, in my opinion. Um, I do not like how the Republican Party has mobilized itself against social change, mobilized itself against the freedom of speech. There are a lot of things to not like. Even as a Christian for the Republican Party, but the party, but the the Christian religion has made itself synonymous and lockstep with the Republican Party, which goes to why is, why is the Republican ideals in the church in the first place? Because as a Christian church, you are supposed to be, you know, teaching the gospel, teaching, um, teaching about the things, the heart of, of God, you know? I saw another clip on TikTok of a of a um, church in Nashville, Tennessee, called Patriot Church. And if you see what's wrong there, I mean, there's there's strike one. But this the pastor there, and I don't know his name. He was saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, that because Jesus is King of everything, which is correct, everything else has to go. And he said, quote, including Joe Biden. And then he he himself started to, to chant, let's go, Brandon, which this is a pastor essentially saying blank Joe Biden in his sermon. And then and then somebody else in the audience came up and brought him a let's go, Brandon hat, which the pastor put on, which, by the way, I am raised to not wear hats in the sanctuary. So that is something else, at least on a Sunday morning. Um, during like a normal church service, so there's something else kind of wrong there too, in my opinion. That's that's a little bit more subjective, in my opinion, but that's that's just how I was raised. So there now you are seeing that there are instances across the country. The first church I showed you was in San Antonio. The one I, the clip I played, the one I just told you about was in Tennessee, in Knoxville. There are instances across the country. Where people instead of getting the gospel or getting the heart of God in a particular setting of the Bible are getting anti-Donald, I mean excuse me, anti-Joe Biden diatribe. And this is this the concern for this can be summed up to another TikTok I saw where this lady detailed how her friend convinced her to go to that same church in San Antonio. It was the first time she had gone to church in quite a long time, if ever, and she was finally convinced and she went, and that is what she saw. Instead of being presented with the gospel like it's like it's supposed to be happening, she was presented with basically something saying to overthrow the presidency. And I took a, um, I took a, I took a uh, screenshot of this, and my phone decided to freeze up on me. Um, in the comments section, a pastor said, quote, I am a pastor, I am a conservative, I'm a Christian. This is wrong and illegal. And this is where, close quote, and this is where we get to the next part of this. Is the American ideals. Now, churches are considered under um, by the IRS, churches are considered nonprofits, which means they are tax exempt. If this sort of thing goes on in churches, their tax exempt status should be removed. Because now you're no longer a religious gathering. You are a, You are a political rally. That is what, in these isolated incidences, which I'm pretty sure there are more of these across the country, by the way that that is what this is this is a political rally this is not a church which means they should have by letter of the tax code that we all live by they should have to pay taxes now that would be incredibly detrimental to churches because churches rely a lot on donations and if you're a um if you're a church like that Patriot Church, which is a, um, which is not a well-established church. I'm just going to, judging by the building that they were in and the setting, I'm going to make that assertion. I could be wrong, but if you are not a well-established church with wealthy parishioners that are giving, you know, a nice little tithe, then having your tax-exempt status removed can be very handcuffing. But it would be the correct play here. And this is not just go for, pres- for churches that say, you know, that are basically giving the G-rated version of blank Joe Biden. This is also any church service that can turn into a pro-President Trump rally. Which, by, th- which by the way, I hate to break it to you Christians. Donald Trump is not the saint that you want him to be. Let's be very, very clear about that. Not only is there a very good chance the man is not even a Christian, the man is also detrimental to the Amer- American ideals. I've outlined that in former podcasts before, but the American ideal of obviously the tax exempt status is in play here, but also separation of church and state. Everybody, um, that's being lost. Because churches are seemingly involving themselves in politics. Now, let me and, and let me let me also say why this is a, why this is a more of a problem than normal. Because we see pastors a lot of times around elections, you know, will sometimes drop little hints here and there and sublimely and sublimely, you know, campaign or promote a certain political candidate. That's normal. What I played for you, what I have described, is not. This, number one, we're not even around an election. Number two, even when we are around elections, that doesn't happen. Joe Biden has been president for pretty much a year now. It's been a year since the election. I guess in January will be the year mark for, for, for President Biden. So, what's going on here is not normal by any way, shape, or form, and by any stretch of the imagination. So now let's get back to separation of church and state. The reason church and state was supposed to be separated is because the church in Europe back in, you know, the 1600s, 1500s, and going all the way back, the church and the state were so synonymous that the church was essentially the government. You know, Christianity as a religion, historically, has been a very divisive one. As a matter of fact, Christianity itself is responsible for civil wars in France and England and basically has wrecked the entire continent of Europe during the Middle Ages. That's fact. And if and that is one of the things America wanted to, you know, make sure does not happen. And because there has been such a um such a vile pushback mostly from from the conservative party, which contains a lot of the country's Christians, you know, you have seen Christians mobilizing in churches and in, you know, different various groups to push back against things like, um... Extra law accountability, reconstruction of law enforcement, which is also under coined under the phrase "defund the police," it has pushed back against things like protests in ways that Donald Trump does not approve. Uh, approve, excuse me. Um, it has pushed back against any kind of social change at all. And since those are hot button topics that are also getting major stimuluses from the current government, you are now seeing the Christian religion. Basically, integrating itself with the Republican Party, and that is dangerous. I just outlined what happened in Europe. Now, do I think the Christian church is going to be part of like some breakout civil war? I don't think that will happen. That's kind of that's a little bit outrageous, but do I think it is above the realm of possibility? No, no, I don't. Because what you are saying here, um, and there's also based, you know. There's also, just in American doctrine and, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, the one nation under God, there has been this assertion that America has done, you know, God's work or whatever over the course of its entire existence. Ladies and gentlemen, it has done the exact opposite. Okay. I'm going to, this is the nicest way I can say this, but historically... America has been a pretty awful country and has done many of things that God, I know, would not approve of and has gone the extra step in using it and using God as justification for doing it. Okay? So, this whole thing that America is God's country and God loves America more than he loves any other country is absolutely false. The Bible says that the son of man, Jesus, came for, first for the Jew. I'm sorry, that does not include Westerners. Okay, so if there's any biblical r- reason to make some sort of claim, it would be to say that God does not love Americans more than He loves anybody else. There's no way to, def- to no way to say, you know, God loves America. Now, was God's, you know, hand in America breaking away from Britain and and winning its independence? Yes, yes, I can say that because you either there's a either that or two the Americans got lucky back in 1776 when you just judge all of that. But let's get back to the main point. I'll close the segment out by this. Churches, your job is to worship God. Your job is to share the gospel, lead people to Christ. Your job is not to support Donald Trump and your job is not supposed to encourage. By the way, I don't know if you heard in that clip that I played earlier, the pastor was in there encouraging the Let's Go Brandon chant. You are not supposed to be encouraging the fall of a regime and an administration. That is completely anti what the church is supposed to do. So if you're going to involve yourself in this, then that particular church's exemption status should be revoked. And let me say this again, because I've said this before, that some parts of the Republican Party have operated opposite of what the contrary to what the Constitution says. If you're going to do this, this is operating against a lot of American ideals, including the separation of church and state. And it is encouraging the contrary of what is in the Constitution that Congress shall not respect. And I'm paraphrasing here, shall not respect one religion over the other. Because that's what you're doing by integrating yourself with a particular party that has a substantial standing in Congress and always has a 50-50 chance with the Democrat Party of being president. All right, so to close out this show, we're good Oklahoma State's basketball season just started, and we know that Oklahoma State is, of course, the 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 blanket that is hanging over all of this is that Oklahoma State is banned from the postseason. They're banned from the Big 12 tournament and the NCAA tournament. So just some early thoughts from the first three games of Oklahoma State season. Number one, the two big-name transfers, Musa Cisse and Bryce Thompson, they've been good. They've been fun to watch. Um, Musa Cisse is a great center. He's got a back-to-the-basket game. He's very coordinated for his, for his build. He has a jumper that ranges from zero to 15 feet. I like Musa Sisei, Not to mention, he's a rim protector as well. He's averaging two block shots per game. Bryce Thompson has looked pretty good. He's been a, he's electric. He's averaging 9.3 points per game. Um, he's shooting 40% from the field. He's making a third of his or uh, a little under um, a little under 30% from three point range. Those guys those guys have been good. We have actually seen improvement from guys like Matthew Alexander Moncrief and Rondell Walker now those guys were freshmen last year and at times they looked a little in over their heads they looked a little sped up like the game was a little too fast paced with them those guys have really settled in and I've liked when I've seen more composure particularly from from Rondell Walker you know a lot of composure from him he's shooting 30, 37.5% from the three point line so he's going to be a shooter he's going to be a 3 and D guy Not a guy you want really handling your offense, but a guy off the wing that can put the ball on the floor, that can shoot you some threes, that can spread the floor, and that can be a defensive stopper on the other end of the court. I like Rondell Walker. Matthew Alexander Moncrief, he's leading the team in rebounds at 6.7. He's he's really undersized for his skill set. His skill set is that of a power forward, but he's 6'7". Which before you get to conference play, you can get away with. But once you get into conference play and the nitty-gritty of the Big 12, as well as other teams that you might see throughout the season, that lack of size could be exploited. And the thing, and the dangerous thing about Oklahoma State is they have two guys like this because Isaac Likely is also like this. Now, Isaac Likely is a guy who exemplifies cowboy basketball and Mike Boynton Jr.'s mantra in terms of playing hard and distributing around your teammates, and playing as a cohesive unit. Isaac Likely is the best example of that. But Isaac Likely is 6'5", and has the skill set of a dude that should be 6'9". Isaac Likely cannot shoot. Um, He is, in terms of a scoring punch, he is useless, except for 7 feet from the basket. And why this is so problematic is because... When you want to play basketball by the drive and kick, which is what Oklahoma State seems to want to do um, from the first couple of games that I've seen in person, and you know the first three games of their season, they want they want to do a lot of drive and kick. And if there's no driving lanes, because if there's no hold on, if there's no driving lanes, then the kick part will never come because against Oklahoma State. And this is their big flaw. This is their big flaw from last year, and it's, and it's showing up as a flaw this year. They are a horrible shooting team. They shoot twenty 29%, nine 29.1% from the three-point line. I mean, nobody's going to play you that far out and open up those driving lanes if you can't knock down buckets. As a matter of fact, we saw in their loss to Oakland, not even the Oakland from California. It's Oakland from Michigan, which I didn't know existed. They played a 1-3-1 zone. Why? Because they weren't scared of Oklahoma State beating them from the corners and from the wings. Oklahoma State's best game is getting to the basket and getting fouls. Oh, except when they get fouls, they can't even convert because they're shooting 62.7% from the free throw line. Those were the two main issues last year, and they're carrying over to this year. Except this year, the difference is you don't have the, the presumptive number one pick in your arsenal in Kate Cunningham. So if Oklahoma State, and this is my early um, assessment of the team, if Oklahoma State does not figure out a way to shoot the ball consistently from the outside, I'm not saying you have to make 45% of your threes, but you need to make, as a team, 36, 37, if you can't figure out how to do that, you're going to have a really hard time scoring points. Because this Oklahoma, because if you can't shoot, the way Oklahoma State is constructed, there's so there's guys that clog the floor way too much, and you're easy to game plan against. You know, zone up, so Oklahoma State cannot get Musa Cisse involved, the six eleven giant. You know, makes zone up and play extreme help defense, so Avery Anderson cannot beat you to the basket. So guys like Donovan Williams or Bryce Thompson can't get to the basket. And make them kick it to guys like Isaac Likely, who you know cannot beat you from the three point arc. Oklahoma State is a team that's going to play hard. They're going to play scrappy. They're gonna they're going to try to get a lot of points out in transition, which if you're a team that cannot score the basketball consistently in the half court because you because you're limited from the perimeter, you will have to resort to getting a lot of buckets in the transition. And early on in the season, we have seen a heightened um effort to try to do that. And you know what this Oklahoma State team reminds me of? They remind me of the Los Angeles Lakers. The reason I said the Los Angeles Lakers will not work this season, with the addition of Russell Westbrook, they do not have enough outside shooting. In the case of Oklahoma State, they've got a couple guys that can shoot the ball from the outside. You know, Keelan Boone is going to be a guy that you're going to need him to to hit some outside shots when he comes into the game. Um, Donovan Williams, he's shooting 40% right now, again, early in the season. You're going to need him to consistently hit outside shots. Rondell Walker, you're going to need him to consistently hit outside shots. Avery Anderson, um, and occasionally Bryce Thompson as well. You're you're going to need these guys to hit outside shots so you can space the floor, open up those driving lanes, make a team play man-to-man so you can exploit those mismatches with Musa Cisse and with Matthew Alexander Moncrief. You don't do that. Your offense is going to be stagnant. Your team will be unable to score points and we'll have to work hard for those points, which is something we saw last year. Except last year, Cade Cunningham was able to bail them out. This time, they do not have a generational talent like Cade Cunningham to do that. They've got players. They are athletic. They are scrappy. They're going to be fun to watch. And it is fun to watch Mike Boynton Jr. coach coach a basketball team. But my biggest fear with this Oklahoma State team is that they cannot shoot from the free throw line and they cannot shoot from the outside which is something you have to do to be successful in college basketball in a time when the game is played by players who, even though smaller, are quicker and are strong, and even the big guys are quick and fast and can close space. All right, that'll do it for me, for the gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. My name is Grayson Singleton. God bless. Keep cool. We will see you next week, as always. Go Pokes.